Good morning, everybody. I've been gone for three months. Anybody notice? A few of you probably don't even know who is this guy. But I'm Gene Binder. I'm the founding pastor here. And two of those months were uh, my fourth sabbatical here at Cornerstone. And then the last month was, has been recovering from pneumonia that I got while I was in Mexico City. So still horribly fatigued. It's a butt kicker. I don't recommend it for anybody. Um, today, we call this Passover Sunday. It's also known as Palm Sunday. It's the day that we remember how Messiah Jesus rode on a donkey from the top of the Mount of Olives all the way down to the Temple Mount while Jews were holding palm branches, hopeful that the Messiah had finally arrived. And they lined both sides of that path singing, Baruch haba blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as it was prophesied several hundred years ago, or several hundred years earlier in the Hebrew Scriptures. Many of you listening here and listening to the stream have walked that path with me in Jerusalem. It's an amazing, inspiring experience. Jesus' real name is? Yeshua, that's his real Hebrew name. It means God's salvation. It literally means Yeh, God, Yeshua, Shua, salvation, God's salvation. And these Jewish men and women uh, waving these palm branches truly believed that this was the time that the promised Messiah would save Israel from their enemies once and for all. That he would establish his eternal messianic kingdom and shalom, the fullness and perfection and wholeness of life would reign and rule forever. Little did they know that their hopes would be dashed when only five days later the Romans would brutally crucify Jesus on a cross and he would be buried among the dead in a tomb. Their hope that the Messiah had come to a tragic end. But their hope was not dashed for long because three days later... You all know the story. Jesus rises from the dead, proving that he's victorious over death, fulfilling his own name by providing Yeshua, God's salvation for the world. And we call this Passion Week based on the, an ancient Latin word called passio, which is a noun that means sufferings. And Passion Week focuses on the pain and suffering that Jesus experienced mentally, physically, spiritually, leading up uh, to and including his crucifixion. So have you ever had a bad week? Sure, we've all had a bad week. Maybe you're having one this week. But um, Jesus is about to have the mother of all bad weeks. But it's important to remember that suffering to the point of death is why he came to earth. This is his primary mission. To make atonement for our sins by the shedding of his own blood. The prophet Isaiah spoke about this atonement in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 through 6. This is what it says. It says, he, meaning the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, as a Jew, before I 
uh, I was like seeking at the time, before I was a believer in Yeshua some 40 years ago now, I remember someone showing me this passage and thinking, because I knew a little about Christianity, I'm not to know, this sounds like Good Friday to me. Like this is the day Christians observe Jesus' crucifixion on a cross. What's it doing here in my Hebrew Bible? Wasn't Jesus a Christian of European descent? Didn't he have blonde hair and blue eyes and spoke in King James English? I mean, honestly, back then, seriously, I had no idea that Jesus was a Jew because I never saw anything in Christianity that portrayed him that way, which reminds me of a great clip I want to show you of a very popular 70s sitcom called All in the Family. Some of you old enough will remember this. If you don't know it at all, it's still going to be a great clip. It starred a character named Archie Bunker, a conservative nominal Christian who often misquoted the Bible, was having trouble adjusting to the rapidly changing 70s culture of his day. It was actually a brilliant sitcom addressing current issues of the day. And in this clip, his best friend, Stretch Cunningham, has died. And Archie is invited to say a few words at the funeral, but when he arrives, Archie is shocked to find out that his best friend, Stretch Cunningham was Jewish, Stretch Cunningham, okay? But it's what Archie says about Jesus at the funeral that I want you to notice. Here it is. This is a funeral for a Jewish guy here. Wait, this Mr. Bunker. I'm so glad you're here. We're just about ready for you. Here's your yarmulke. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's going on, Edith? I guess Stretch must have been Jewish. Stretch Jewish with a name like Cunningham. Oh, Archie, what's in the name? A Jewish name ain't supposed to have no ham in it. This if he was really Jewish, why didn't he tell some of his closest buddies? It wouldn't have made no difference. Maybe he thought it would. Friends, we are here today to say farewell to Jerome Cunningham, beloved son of Chaim Kornheimer. A close friend of Jerome's is here today to say some parting words, Mr. Archie Bunker. Wait a minute, don't forget your beanie. Ouch! Don't put your foot in the eye. speech here to read, but it's, uh, it's got 
two or three Jesuses in it here. So. Not that there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, after all, uh, Jesus himself was a Jew until his father sat him down and told him no more of that. <laughs> Jesus was a Jew until his father sat him down and said no more of that. <laughs> I don't know. Don't you find it amazing that a 70s scriptwriter for this show had enough knowledge that Christianity had drifted away from its Jewish roots? I find that pretty interesting. Because sadly, the idea that God is done with anything Jewish is a view the church embraced early on in history. But this inerrant idea couldn't be any further from the truth. And today, as we conclude the stream series, by looking at what we call a seamless life, the messianic stream, in order to appreciate the importance and meaning of this stream, I want to give you a very specific but very truncated lesson on church history. I mean, I'm talking about probably eight hours of content condensed into 20 minutes. So just know there's going to be huge gaps of information, but you will get the point that I'm wanting to make. I'm definitely sure of that. Let's start with the reality that Jesus was not Japanese. He was not Italian. He wasn't Colombian. He wasn't even a Martian. Jesus was a Jew, and I might add a very devout Jew, who was born and lived his entire life in a specific region of the world called Israel. And when he became 33 years of age, he proclaimed himself as a rabbi and began to recruit 12 Jewish disciples who became his first followers. And over the course of three years before he was crucified, Jesus traveled around teaching in various places in Israel, mostly in the northern region of the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he became highly popular. He attracted massive crowds of Jews wherever he went, most of whom became his followers as well, and even some Jewish leaders like Nicodemus. Over time, Jesus began to real, reveal to them that he was the Messiah. And then after he was crucified and resurrected from the dead, we see thousands more come to faith, and every one of these followers were Jewish for the first 10 years. And what is very important to understand is that none of them wanted or were even trying to start a new religion. They were merely Jews who believed that the promised Messiah had finally arrived. And they were considered by the other Jews of the day as a Jewish sect, just as there were Jewish sects back then, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. And they, too, had a name that they went by, and that Hebrew name is Haderech, which in English translates, anybody know? The way. No way. Yes, way. Okay. And another dated movie. Okay. And this Jewish sect called the way is mentioned several times in the New Testament. Here's just one example of where it's mentioned in the book of Acts during a time when Rabbi Saul, the Apostle Paul, is accused of being anti-Jewish or anti-Torah by other Jews. And he's defending his Jewishness before the Roman governor named Felix. 
And in this passage, Paul not only proudly defends his allegiance to this new Jewish sect called the Way, he also defends his allegiance to being a devout Jew. So here it is, Acts chapter 24, verse 14. He says, I admit that I worship the God of our our ancestors as a follower of the Way, which they, meaning Paul's Jewish accusers, call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law, the Torah, and that is what's written in the prophets. Later on, Paul adds, just a couple chapters later, that he continues to follow all the customs of Moses. Now, historically, the church has taught that Paul did away with the Torah, but this and a few other passages clearly dispute that belief, and there are many who speculate why Uh, these early followers of Rabbi Jesus chose this name, The Way. And some believe that it was because Jesus declared himself the way, the truth, and the life. And that's a very plausible possibility. But there are other several passages in Hebrew scriptures that exhort us to follow the way of the Lord or prepare the way of the Lord. And each time, those are the Hebrew words, haderech. But no matter where this name comes from, the point I want you to grasp is that initially the way was an all-Jewish sect with all Jewish leadership made up of entirely devout Jews who were not trying to create some kind of a new religion. They merely merely considered themselves one of many Jewish sects in Israel back then. Okay, Ten years later, we fast forward ten years later, God reveals the plan that he had made Uh, something the Bible calls a mystery that has been hidden since the beginning of time when God wrote this story. And what is the plan? Well, to have Gentiles come to faith in Jesus. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 10, but no one is more shocked by this surprising turn of events than the Jewish believers. Like, oy vey. And you can read about how they deal with this in Acts chapter 15. But from this point on, we see a slow but steady shift away from all Jewish, an all-Jewish movement called the Way, with an all-Jewish leadership based in Jerusalem, to eventually an all-Gentile movement now called Christianity, with an all-Gentile leadership based where? In Rome. And during this slow progression, which spanned a little over 300 years, Jewish and Gentile believers grew and thrived together in the Roman world. And many observed both Jewish and Christian traditions together. The church of Ephesus particularly was a great example of this radical and and beautiful unity, most likely because Paul wrote to this church early on in their history, and he encouraged this. Ephesians 2, 14 through 15 says... For Jesus himself is our peace. He has made the two groups, meaning Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And this one new humanity was not intended to create a monoculture, you know, where everyone looks and acts the same. And we know this because when Jesus finally establishes his eternal 
uh, kingdom called New Jerusalem, it's not going to be monoculture, is it? We read in Revelation that there'll be every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So it's not going to be a monoculture. God's plan is not for us all to look or to act Jewish. His plan is to have a very diverse humanity, diverse humanity for all of eternity, united together by our faith in Yeshua. And I imagine that walking into the church of Ephesus would have been a lot like walking into here at Cornerstone Boulder, because here we have many Jewish and Gentile believers all under one roof, united together by our faith in Jesus as well. But we are very diverse culturally, politically, any way you want to think of it. We're diverse here, which I'm going to talk about more in just a few minutes. The church in Ephesus must have been a beautiful and inspirational sight to behold. But sadly, over time, many of the new Gentile leaders now of the church became Jew haters. And because they truly believed that God hated the Jews for killing his son Jesus, almost all of what we call the, our church fathers said horrible things about the Jewish people. And eventually, Jewish hatred became so embedded in the church that an event took place in 325 AD that ended any cooperative observance between Jews and Jewish and Gentile believers. Because at that event, all Jewish observances and practices within Christianity were banned. 325 AD. Which also ended any more Jews coming to faith in Jesus, since they would have to stop being Jewish, something most Jews would never do, even to the point of being martyred if they had to, and many were. That event is called the Nicene Creed. Almost every Christian has heard about this Nicene, or the Nicene Council, sorry, not the Nicene Creed. And they know something about the beauty of the Nicene Creed, which is an amazing piece of work. In fact, I would like us, for the second time, to stand and read something together. Because I believe this is a powerful document. It's a powerful liturgy powerful theology. So let's do it together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the begotten of God, the Father, the only begotten that is of the substance of the Father. God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten and not made, of the very same nature of the Father, by whom all things came into being, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, who for humanity and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate, became human, was born perfectly of the Holy Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, by whom he took body, soul, and mind, and everything that is in man, truly and not in semblance. He suffered, was crucified, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven in the same body, and sat at the right hand of the Father. He is to come with the same body and with the glory of the Father to judge the living and the dead. Of his kingdom there is no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the uncreate and the perfect, who spoke through the law, the prophets, and the gospels, 
who came down upon the Jordan, preached through the apostles, and lived in the saints. We believe also in what? Uh, let's start that over. We believe also in only one universal apostolic and holy church, in one baptism with repentance for the remission and forgiveness of sins, and in the resurrection of the dead, in the everlasting judgment of souls and bodies, in the kingdom of heaven, and in the everlasting life. Okay, sit down. I don't know how you feel about that, but I think that's an amazing piece of work. To this day, it's a powerful and amazing um, inspirational creed. And there were other resolutions that came from this council that are just as amazing. But few people, and particularly Christians, know that at this same council, which intentionally did not invite any of the Jewish leaders back then, and there were many Jewish leaders back then. We call them bishops today. There were many Jewish bishops back then. At this council, laws were passed that hijacked our faith and completely disconnected us from our rich Jewish heritage. This disconnection pushes the church to grow even more anti-Semitic, leading to even stricter and severe laws against Jews. And over the course of time, this Christian Jewish hatred grew so deep that millions of Jews would be slaughtered by Christians in Jesus' name as if somehow Jesus would be honored and avenged by this behavior. Now, I won't go into this in any more detail. If you want to know more about it, uh, you can just Google early church fathers anti-Semitic, okay? I'm pretty sure you'll be shocked by what you find and you need to know that none of this history is debated. None of this history is contested. There are no conspiracies to hide it. It's just not the history that pastors are taught in seminary. So it's rarely addressed in sermons or Bible studies. And because of this, most Christians are unaware of this dark history. But I can tell you, every one of your Jewish friends is very aware of it which might explain why they quickly close down the conversation when you try to tell them how much Jesus loves them. And I can tell you that while you're telling them this good news, they're thinking, this is the worst news I've ever heard. And so it really helps to be aware of this history, especially if you want to share your faith with a Jewish person, okay? Let's skip forward 17 centuries... 17 long, 1,700 long years from the Nicene Council event to another event that took place in 1968, a time when God finally begins to return the church back to its Jewish roots. That event is called the Jesus People Revival Movement. How many of you got saved during that revival? Anybody? One? God bless you. <laughs> I actually was taken to an event at Calvary Chapel when they were still meeting at a tent in Southern California and heard the gospel and I turned it down. It would take about another 14 years before God gave me another chance. But it came during the hippie movement. Were you a hippie, Gil? Yeah, me too. Okay. <laughs> 
It came during the hippie movement. So the Vietnam War is raging. Massive protests are taking place. Young people around the world are advocating for a more peaceful, loving way to live. And there were some good things that came out of the hippie movement like bell-bottom jeans and platform shoes and phrases like far out and groovy. But eventually it turned very dark and when many began to die from drug overdoses and the free love environment produced an explosion of deadly STDs, like a supernatural wave of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, a massive revival begins to break out. And thousands upon thousands are coming to faith in Jesus. You know, it was kind of like fishing in a pond, one of those ponds where they raise trout. I mean, you're, you're going to get a... You're going to get like your limit like in 10 minutes. And that's how it was. You couldn't do anything wrong. Most were young people. Most of those young people were hippies. And many of these hippies were, are you ready? Jews. Jewish people. And these Jews became radical followers of Yeshua. Initially, they began attending churches because that was the only game in town. Baptist churches, charismatic churches, Presbyterian churches, you name it, kind of churches. And as they read the New Testament for the first time, they were surprised to learn that all the writers were Jewish and how Jewish the teachings in all the New Testaments were but also how the church was missing the deeper Jewish context of many of those texts and often uh, arriving at incorrect and sometimes destructive conclusions. And as they approached their, their pastors, their reaction they often got was, God is done with Jewish things in the church. So many started what is called messianic congregations where they could freely reconnect back to the Jewish roots of the faith. And today there are literally thousands of Messianic congregations around the world. There's at least six in the Metro Denver area with hundreds of thousands of Jewish believers around the world. And those numbers are growing exponentially today if you're keeping track, especially in Israel. And these early group of Jewish believers in the late 60s and 70s is really the beginning of where we get this messianic stream. And we owe them a debt of gratitude for reconnecting us back to our Jewish heritage that was hijacked beginning in 325 AD. Fast forward to 1982. This is a big year, 1982, when another Jewish believer comes to faith in Jesus. And he's been a major contributor to this movement and bringing this reconnection message ever since. In 1994, he planted a church here in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> that eventually became something like what that pre-Nicene Council, those, those pre-Nicene Council churches would have looked like, where both Jewish and Gentile believers worship together under one roof and respect and observe both Jewish and Christian traditions. That Jewish believer, of course, is me, and that church is Cornerstone Boulder. One of the most cutting-edge and unique churches in the world. It really is, if you don't know that. When it comes to having a thriving and successful model of the Messianic stream that doesn't get bogged down in legalism, which is a trend 
and doesn't have a disdain for anything Christian. Sadly, most Messianic Christians don't like Easter, and they don't like Christmas. And with the rest of our time, I want to share with you three primary ways of what the Messianic stream looks like here at Cornerstone, okay? Um, Number one, we teach the Bible, and we see all of history as one story, not two stories, all right? Not a Jewish story that God ended 2,000 years ago and then morphed into a Christian story. We see the Bible and all of history as one beautiful, seamless story from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. This is where we get the title of a seamless life. Here at Cornerstone, uh, we, we see it all as a narrative, an epic tale that God wrote before the beginning of time when he was in eternity past. And Genesis 1-1 is where he presses the play button and the story begins and it's been playing out just the way God wrote it ever since and it will continue to play out all the way until its climactic ending or as we say here, its new beginning. And in this story, the Jewish people play a, a key role throughout the entire story. And when you put it all together like this, when you understand it all together like this, all the pieces of this puzzle about Bible and history begin to make sense and it energizes your faith. If you'd like to go into this deeper, I highly recommend a cutting-edge book (laughs) called Connecting the Dots. This author is amazing. And if you speak Spanish, it's in Spanish as well, Uniendo los Puntos. And I just happen to have a few of them here. If you want them, they're just outside to the right of the information table. Um, Okay, number two, we respect and observe both Jewish and Christian traditions. And I mentioned this earlier when talking about the church at Ephesus. And for us, this shows up mostly on our calendar. And this week is a perfect example of how it works. We couldn't pick a bigger, uh, better week to talk about the Messianic stream or confluence as we call it here. Because during this week, just this week alone, many of you are going to be hosting or attending a Passover Seder. How many of you are going to be doing that, by the way? Look at this. You know, we've been doing this so long, we have kids here who aren't Jewish who would be mad if they didn't have a Passover Seder. Um, It's a very Jewish and powerful tradition, and it should be, especially for us as as, uh, believers in Jesus, Passover is the first of the seven annual feasts commemorating the shed blood of that perfect sacrificed lamb. Remember, the blood is taken, and if the Jews mark the doorpost of their door, the angel of death would pass over. That's where we get the name Passover, right? Protecting the Jewish firstborn from death. And what does it correspond to? It's no coincidence that Jesus, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed I can't get into detail, but I'll give you this detail. During the time, right in the middle, at 2 p.m. In the after, or 3 p.m. in the afternoon, when the, at the temple they would be sacrificing the lambs. He's, he's crucified at that time. 
And it's no coincidence because Passover corresponds with the shed blood of our perfect sacrifice lamb, Yeshua, God's salvation, that when we mark the doorpost of our hearts, it protects us from eternal death. I mean, connect the dots. But then on Sunday, many of you will be attending Easter services here or somewhere else, a very Christian tradition, which just happens to fall on the third feast that's observed, both corresponding to the idea of resurrection. And I I cover an entire chapter to the feast in my book. Uh, If you've never put that all together, just read that chapter, and you'll be blown away by that. From encouraging our people to have meaningful weekly Sabbaths to a giant party in the fall celebrating the feast called Sukkot, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, to inspirational Christmas services, we connect the dots here at Cornerstone by demonstrating how these Jewish and Christian traditions are not two different stories. They're not two different faiths. And both are intimately connected to each other and extremely meaningful when you understand them in their connecting context. Number three, we interpret the Bible according to its original Jewish context. You see that up here. Everyone that speaks up here gets this and digs down deep to get down to understanding the original Jewish context, particularly in the New Testament. How many of you have ever been taught that during the Old Testament... That was the age of the law. And during the New Testament, that is the age of grace. Raise your hand. I just want to see. Because that, that's the prevailing teaching in Christianity. <clears throat> How many of you know that that is entirely untrue? <laughs> you all should raise your hands right now. Okay. It's fake news. The age of grace... Through faith, it's always been that way. It started when God created the universe, and it's been that way ever since, and it will be that way forever. Adam and Eve received God's grace in the garden when they sinned. The Bible says Abraham believed, and it was credited righteousness to him. When Moses received the Torah, the law, grace through faith was still the mechanism that people were saved. People always ask me, how were Jews saved in the Old Testament? Well... This is why God included in the Torah so many ceremonies and sacrifices to atone for sin. The most significant of these ceremonies was the sixth feast. It's called Yom Kippur in Hebrew. It's called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. There's your sign right there, right? The Day of Atonement. There's a Day of Atonement. And it was a national day of atonement where the sins of the entire nation of Israel are forgiven. How? By the shed blood of an animal sprinkled by the high priest. One special day out of the year. And only that day could he enter in. He goes into the holy place. That's the first room. And then into the most holy place. Only one day out of the year. And he would sprinkle the blood on what is called the mercy seat of God. It's not the age of the law. 
And when he finally emerged before the waiting crowd, there was this collective sigh of relief. My name is written into the book of life for another year. But it's important to know that this was only a temporary system. Temporary in the sense that they had to come back year after year after year after year. And temporary in the sense that the blood of an animal was eternally insufficient. It was only temporary. A greater and more perfect sacrifice would be needed in the future. And understanding this allows us to connect the dots to the teaching found particularly in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6 through 9, which I encourage you, read Hebrews chapter 8 through 9. Sorry, did I say 6 through 9? 8 through 9. Read it this week. Because it's the most exhaustive and amazing revelation about what this week is all about. But let's just double-click for a moment on this section from chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, and it says this. The priests entered regularly into the outer room, meaning the holy place, to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, so everyone, who committed sins in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. Verse 9 continues on. I mean, verse 11 and 12 continues. But when Messiah came as high priest of the good things that are now ready here, he went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by human hands, That is to say, is not part of creation. We're talking about a heavenly tabernacle. And he did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all. How? By his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The theology in Hebrews chapter 9, 8 through 10. I can't get that right. 8 through 10, is probably the most important theology in your Bible about why we celebrate this week so much. I recommend that you don't tell your Jewish friends how much Jesus loves them. Don't tell them. Start with, I'm really sorry for all the crap we gave Jewish people in our faith. I wasn't there. I'd like to think I wouldn't join in in that kind of stuff, but... Any religion is made up of humans, which potentially thinks and go wrong. And then ask them if they would like to read Hebrews chapter 8 through 10. And then tell them how Jesus is the fulfillment of this feast, Yom Kippur. Hebrews 8.10 is amazing. Which brings us to thinking more about what was taking place this week 2,000 years ago. Let's just back up 2,000 years. Look how much time we've traveled here. You know, we went 2,000 forward, now we're going 2,000 back. And Jesus is having his last supper on earth with his disciples. And technically, that's what it is. It was his last supper. 
But calling it that is evidence of the disconnection to our Jewish roots because it neglects to reveal that this event is really his last Passover Seder with them. Take a look at Da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper. Up here, can we get that? Okay. No Jew would ever recognize this as a Jewish event. And especially not a Passover Seder. These guys don't look Jewish. They have loaves of leavened bread on the table. Blasphemous, you know? There's some hanky-panky going on between the woman, presumably Mary Magdalene, and one of the disciples. What the heck is that? This painting is really an offense to our Jewish history. It is. But the most important thing missing is all the rest of their families. Because Passover is the one event that God wants the entire family to be part of it. Because over and over, we are told in the Hebrew Scriptures to pass down the story of God's redemption. Remember, you too were once slaves. That is the premise for all the reasons that we do the great things that we do, that we love so deeply. Because we too are to remember that we were once slaves. Slaves to sin. But that God has set us free through the blood of Yeshua. And this story is commanded. It's not suggested. It's commanded that you gather your family and you tell the next generation so that they can tell the next generation and the next generation. And it would be unthinkable for any Jew, as it should be for us as well, not to have our entire family present at this event. Here's another painting of the same event. That's another depiction of the last Passover Seder. It's very Jewish. They all look Jewish. There's only unleavened bread on the table. And all the family is present. Yes, these disciples had wives and kids. This is a painting any Jew could be proud of. And it's a painting that you should be proud of as well. Because this is our true messianic stream history right up here. So grab your little communion cup. Good job on whoever changed these out. In the three months I was gone, we got more functional communion cups. <laughs> They're still very COVID-ish, but um, they're better. And go ahead and get the little, hopefully unleavened piece of bread or whatever that is there. That last night with his disciples is a Passover Seder. And I imagine that Jesus told them, I am the whole reason for that event. I am the fulfillment of what Passover means. 
And he said, do this in remembrance of me. But I, I think that behind that is the statement that you too were once slaves. And that because of my broken body and because of my shed blood, the chains that held you in bondage have set you free. That's what this means. And as, as you take the bread and you drink the cup, and we'll do this together in just a second, remember that. It doesn't mean that you're not still going to struggle because you're going to struggle to your last breath. It just means that you have been set free from the consequences of sin. Your sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. That's the grace of God right there. It's great if you make some progress in your life to be able to get down the road and and you live a more righteous life. That's great. But you may not get there. That's what this is for. This covers all of that. And if you're here struggling this morning because you're sick and tired of failing to live a perfect life, well, welcome to one humanity. Because that's all of our problems. But thank God that God has set us free. So let's eat the bread. Lord, we know know you struggled in the garden. We're going to be reminded of that as we read, think about you in this week. It was not something you wanted to do. You wanted to actually not do it, and you wanted to see if there was another way to do it, and yet you said, not my will, God, and you went for it. And we thank you, because if you had not been obedient, still be in chains today and there's power in your name God we thank you for that Beshem Yeshua HaMashiach in the name of Jesus our Messiah